0: The following message is by Dr. Cliff McManus, pastor-teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship, located in Sunnyvale, California. Those of you who haven't been with us on a regular basis, if you're visiting or you've just been out for whatever reason, we finished the book of Acts, and now we're doing a series on relevant pressing issues of the day and see what the Bible has to say about it. So we started one last week, What the Bible Says About Israel part one, so if you haven't had a chance to uh, listen to that online, it might be up there by now and notes posted, and you can listen to that and get caught up, because that definitely is, last week is foundational to this week, follow-up, and I think if I could summarize the 45, 50-minute sermon from last week, what question did we answer? The question was, where does the nation of Israel come from? Where does the nation of Israel come from? And the answer, according to the Bible, was God created that nation, Israel, as a special nation, as a very specific promise that he made to Abraham. That's where the nation of Israel comes from. That's how the Bible answers it because we noted last week other people have different answers to that question, and we noted that there are some anti-Semitic people, people who hate the Jews and hate Israel, who are very public, very vocal, actually have wide exposure. Coming through the news and other programming, and shouted from a megaphone that Israel doesn't even have a right to exist. And we introduced Yasser Arafat of the PLO, could have quoted him a lot, the Palestinian Liberation Organization, whose one of his life's mantras was that Israel doesn't have a right to exist, and his goal was to push them into the Mediterranean Sea, and who non-existence, finishing the job that Hitler started and never was privileged to finish. And I'm not exaggerating. And people with that perspective, and it is widespread in our world today. It's even widespread in America, sadly, of people who have nothing but utter disdain for the nation of Israel. And it's in the news every day. People are talking about it all the time. Many of our public universities it's rampant, that worldview, this hostile, anti-Semitic attitude to the point that Israel doesn't even have a right to exist. So last week, it was just simply, hey, what does the Bible have to say about it? Does the Bible have anything to say about Israel? Oh, lo and behold, it did. And question number one, where in the world did Israel come from? And our answer we found out last week clearly was that God created Israel. Big question number two today, which is part two of what the Bible says about Israel Okay, we know where Israel came from. God created Israel as a nation. But the second question is, well, what about the land of Israel now? The actual geography there. Someone told me last week, I'm going to Israel this week. That's what they said. I'm going to Israel. I knew exactly what they were talking about. The Middle East there, basic geography, general state, no, I'm going to Israel. Even though, if you looked at a map today, uh, Israel's all chopped up in terms of its demographics and political assignments and various religions and who has the rights. But when they said, I'm going to Israel, I knew where they were talking about. But that's not, it was clear in my mind, but it's not clear in a lot of people's minds. So that's the question we want to ask today. What about the land? Who does it belong to anyway? I told you last week there was a book called uh israel who who does the land belong to whose land is it anyway i think is the title of the book whose land is it anyway so that's the answer uh we are looking for from scripture i think scripture is very clear about this whose land is it anyway who should be there and we're going to look at these scriptures i'm going to ask you to move quickly with me today as we go through those in order to get through all 13 23 points no 13 points today (laughs) and but i think you'll that you got to know all of it because it fills in the whole picture. You can't just have part of the truth. you got to have the whole truth. Uh, before we get there, just a thought. In 1973, when nine of the Supreme Court justices of the United States took a vote on the case called Roe v. Wade, and in a supermajority vote of 7 to 2, the Supreme Court justices of the United States determined that the baby in the womb is not a person. That's what they declared or decreed. That hasn't been overturned, and it's been the law of the land here in America ever since 1973. And it's complicated, a lot of argument, all this. But the essence of it, the, the very the issue that really matters is in order to Render the verdict that he did seven to two is what they had determined is that the baby in the womb is not a person. That's what determined their decision. So it's even illegitimate of me to say the baby in the womb. I should be saying, according to them, the fetus in the womb is not a person. Well, I'm not going to say that. And it became controversial. It's still controversial to this day. There are even Christians, Bible-believing, sincere Bible-believing, born-again Christians, who are actually at times confused about this issue. Wow, the United States government ruled by decree, they're the highest authority in the land, that the, the baby and the woman is not a person. Therefore, what they're saying must be true. It's the law. They made a, a legal declaration. After all, abortion isn't specifically talked about in the Bible so it must be okay. Christians, I've talked with Christians, interacted with Christians who actually think that or have thought that. And it's, it's controversial in the world today, that discussion. To me it's not, so somebody who actually studies the Bible, knows the Bible, clearly when this decree was issued in 1973, if you were a, a mature, seasoned, well-informed, biblical Christian in 1973 and you heard this rendering, that created a tumult in America and the world and a lot of confusion on the part of people. If you were a seasoned, mature, Bible believing, literate Christian, it didn't, you, you had no confusion about the issue. It wasn't a political issue. It wasn't a social issue. It was clearly a biblical issue. And you know as a Christian that clearly the Bible teaches that life is sacred and life begins in the womb. There, that is just crystal clear in the Bible. So in my mind, there's nothing controversial about it. It's just dead wrong. So, and similarly, in June 2015, just a couple of years ago, uh, when the Supreme Court, or nine justices again here in America, rendered a decision in June, five to four this time, and majority rules. After all, majority determines truth. Five, four in favor And these judges here in America decided that, well, you know what, marriage is not isolated or restricted to just one man and one woman. So in effect, they redefined marriage. And then as a result, there was all kinds of discussion and confusion and hostility uh, on the part of many people as they tried to discuss and failed to even discuss this issue of the basic definition of marriage and I've talked to a lot of Christians who were highly confused about it and very frustrated and didn't know what to do. And there were even Christians who weren't sure about the rendering and they, well, you know, the Supreme court said, after all it was uh five to four and you know, marriage should include, you know, we're about the Bible says God's about love and the Bible's about love and we should include everybody. And so what's wrong with having relationships called marriage that aren't just one man, one woman. And I I had, conversation with real christians who believe in the bible who are confused about this issue and some still are i know because i talk to them or they ask me questions so-called bible believing christians who are confused about whether the true definition is isolated to one man and one woman before god and but if again when the rendering came out on June uh, 2015, if you were a born-again Christian and you believed in the Bible and you were literate in the Bible and you understand the truth of God, when the rendering came out, it was crystal clear. There was no confusion, there was no ambiguity, there was no pause to think, huh, well, maybe they're right. Maybe I've been wrong all along and too narrow-minded in my definition of marriage. And Well, maybe, yeah, maybe marriage is more than one man and woman. Well, that I didn't think that. And clearly, if you believe in the Bible, you shouldn't have thought that. It's crystal clear. God is clear in Scripture about the definition of marriage. It's been true for 6,000 years. It's in the first chapter of the Bible. God created humanity, man and woman, be fruitful and multiply. So for someone who knows the Bible, there are certain issues that the world says are controversial or debatable or whatever. That, no, no, Actually, if you know the Bible, they're not debatable. And so that's issue number three. And that has to do with the issue of Israel their existence, who they are, their identity, and the land over there in the Mideast, the land of Israel. Who does it belong to? Who has the rights to it? Who has proper authority in terms of ownership of it? And the world is just lost in a mass of confusion about this. It's probably one of the most controversial and heatedly debated issues in our day. Who Does the land belong to? Does it belong to the Jews? Does it belong to the Palestinians, whoever they are, or someone else? But again, if you know the Bible, believe the Bible, or educated in the Bible, you were separated and unique from the rest of the world on December 6th, just two months ago, when President Trump declared that Jerusalem was the capital of Israel. And boy, he sent off fireworks around the the globe. In terms of what we were seeing on all the news networks for the most part, they were shocked. As a matter of fact, here are some quotes. His statement caused instability in the world. Another quote his statement was unsettling world politics, end quote. These are from, you know, the most popular news sites like CNN and others. That was scandalous. Uh, for US or the p- current President to make the declaration that Jerusalem is the capital of Israel is undermining fifty years of US precedent in their position on world politics. No one before this president ever considered here in America that <laughs> Jerusalem is the capital of Israel. I mean that 's what was being splattered all over the news, which is just not true that 's false. but it doesn 't matter what the news is or recent precedent. Again, this issue about Israel is in the Bible. God is authoritative about it. It's very clear. There's a history there that goes back for thousands of years. And so that's why we want to go to Scripture, not modern-day headlines and bumper stickers and those kind of things of people who are ignorant and really aren't studying the right sources to answer the question anyway. Usually they have a political agenda or some other agenda that's not sincere or with integrity. So we just look to Scripture And the scripture is sufficient, especially on this issue. So that's what we want to do today is answer the question, who does the land actually belong to today? So let's go ahead and look at that. And we'll just, we're going to walk through these 13 points. Are you ready? Here we go. Some passages you'll have time to turn to. Others I'll just read it for you and it's right there just to make it easier for you. But when you're talking about this kind of issue, say you're a university student at um, Berkeley University in our backyard. Or is it Stanford? Stanford University. You, it's very possible that you might have a political science class or any class at Stanford, as a matter of fact, where maybe even the professor is anti-Israel being in the land. And then it might come up in a discussion, and there's a heated debate in the class and whatever, and then hopefully you can have an informed opinion as you raise your hand and uh, give your opinion, and you're informed because you know what the Bible says about it, the authoritative source. It's very helpful. And when you're talking about this, you, you do have to be informed, but you have to be informed on a lot of things because this is a complicated issue even though the answer is very clear in the end about who's the land belong to, the promised land. Uh, so the title, what the Bible says about Israel, part two, the promised land. So God promised to give the land to somebody. The question is, who is that? Number one, in answering this question, who does the land over there in the Middle East belong to? I told you somebody told me a week ago they were going to Israel. Uh, some people might say Palestine. They might refer to the land over there as Palestine. That would be interesting to take a little survey and have you... Do a pop quiz. Uh, please, on a piece of paper, draw the, G, the current geography of Palestine for me. I would love to see your answers. And I guarantee you, no, one, uh, no two people would have the same map drawn out. Palestine. Or just give me a definition of Palestine. What is Palestine? Where is Palestine? What's the origin of Palestine? Who belongs to Palestine? Who lives in Palestine? Who has the rights of Palestine? What's the origin of Palestine? I guarantee not two people would come with the same answer. Because many people think Palestine is synonymous with the land over there we call Israel today. The problem is it's not. Do a Bible study on Palestine. There's an assignment. Do a Bible study in your dorm on Palestine. A Bible study. And then you open up your Bible like the NASB. And you won't have a Bible study because the word Palestine doesn't exist in the Bible. Do you know that? It's not in the Bible. So that's just one example of why there is so much confusion on this issue. Okay, number one, God is the creator and owns the whole earth. We're talking about property rights, land, authority. This is the starting point. Psalm 24, verse 1, I believe this is his psalm of David, a beautiful psalm, and he starts it out by saying the earth is the Lord's. The earth is the Lord's and all it contains, the world and those who dwell in it. So who owns the land over there in Israel? God. He owns it. And then the next verse or two, David says, why? God owns it because he created it. He created all things. That's Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. God is the creator. Therefore, he owns everything. He's absolutely sovereign. He has all rights and privileges. He determines everything. And he's the final judge. So point number one, God is the creator and owns the whole earth. So who owns the land over there that we call Israel or Palestine? God. That's really the right answer. Number two, God creates all nations and removes them at will. This coincides with what we talked about last week, where we show that for the first few thousands of years of world history, there weren't any nations. Up until the time of Genesis chapter 10 and 11, around the time of Abraham, 2000 B.C., there weren't any distinct nations until the Tower of Babel. It was just... uh, People called on the name of the Lord is what it says. Just just humanity. There was one human race. They spoke the same language. And they didn't really have any boundaries. And they could just go anywhere they wanted all over the world. And that's for the first 2,000 years of world history. And then the Tower of Babel came along. And then God created nations. And he created nations from the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And pretty much all nations, ethnicities, and even the geography of the nations come from the loins of uh, the sons of Noah Shem, Ham, and Japheth. That's where we all come from, whether it's your English or your Irish or your Chinese or your Taiwanese, or you're a Filipino or whatever. Slavic, you can find your origin in the sons of Noah. That's when nations were created. God's the one that did it. Uh, not only does he create nations, but in Daniel chapter 4, actually Daniel chapter 2 and Daniel chapter 4, this is like 600 BC, uh, a prophecy by the prophet Daniel written down in his book called Daniel. And he's talking about uh, the end of the world. And, and actually, he's giving a scope, a panoramic scope of all of world history and how God is totally sovereign. He is in control. He is in charge. Uh, there are no mistakes. Everything's leading up to his perfect plan. He raises up leaders. He tears down leaders. He raises up nations. He tears down nations. He is the author of history. It is history. It is his story. And that's what Daniel's informing us on and he makes a statement in daniel 432 paralleled by chapter 2 verse 21 quote the most high that's god is ruler over the realm of mankind god is the ruler over the entire earth not the united nations the most high is ruler over the, the realm of mankind and he bestows on it whomever he wishes and in that context he's talking about he raises up kings he tears down kings he raises up nations he lowers nations Why does Israel exist? Because at some point, God created them and raised them up. Why does Israel still exist after, get this, Israel as a nation was created with Abraham, which is 4,000 years ago. And God told Abraham, I am going to make you a great nation. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse those who, who curse you. And my promise is perpetual and forevermore. And out of the loins of Abraham came the Jews. And God told him, your descendants, Abraham, will be as numerous as the stars of the heavens and the sands of the sea. And that's true. For 4,000 years in continuity, this world has never been without the people of Abraham, the Jews or the Israelites or the Hebrews. They have always existed. God has ensured that. And there are Jews, there are millions of Jews, Hebrews, Israelites that live in the land of Israel today. Not by coincidence, but by God's plan, by God's preservation. By God's providence. How long has the nation of Israel been in existence? 4,000 years. Think of another. What other nation on planet Earth today out of 193 nations or 196 nations has a history that goes back for 4,000 years? What's the oldest nation on planet Earth today that's still intact? There isn't one. In terms of homogeneity of the people, their ethnicity, the geography, their land, their politics, their language, their heritage, their history, all of it. There isn't one. Israel is the only one that goes back 4,000 years. Nobody else comes close. The United States were 200 plus years. Not long at all. Uh, Rome as an empire lasted about 500 years, maybe. This is absolutely amazing. But God raises up nations, He tears them down, and He has been preserving the nation of Israel for 4,000 years. Uh, so god is the creator he owns the whole earth number two god creates all nations and removes them at his will number three by the way the united states has been around for 200 plus years uh we don't know what the future is for the united states here they're not it's not in the bible it's kind of interesting there are very specific nations mentioned in the bible regarding future prophecy in the end of the world in revelation and in ezekiel and other places uh united states isn't mentioned nowhere to be seen that's i think that's telling Number three, God determines the boundaries of nations. Okay, so who decides the boundaries of nations? Well, God does. Acts 17, verse 26. Okay, so this was Paul. We went through Acts. He goes into Athens for just a very short period of time at Greece, and he has an opportunity to uh, preach the gospel publicly to the highly educated Greeks there, who were pagans and polytheists for the most part. And he preaches the gospel and he, he starts with Old Testament truth by saying, yeah, you know, you guys believe in a creator. Actually, you believe in a zillion of them. But anyway, you're right in the fact that there's at least one and there's only one, the creator. You don't know his name, but I'll tell you his name. His name is Jesus. He gets to that. Uh, but he, he starts with Genesis chapter one, Paul does to these pagans. And he says that it was from one man, from one blood, God created all the nations of the earth. One, one man, God created humankind, the human race. One man. That's what Paul said in Acts 17. And then in commenting on that, he, he elaborates on it. So, he had Adam and Eve, God created the human race from one man, Adam and Eve, we know that from the Bible, and that God was the one that determined who their descendants would be, when their descendants would be born, all throughout history, and God even determined the boundaries in which they would live. God determined that. So, if today your existence, God determined your existence, He determined where you would be born. I was born in Denver, Colorado. That was by God's design, His sovereign selection, not coincidence. He determined that I would be born in 1966 for his purposes. Very clearly, Paul says in Acts 17, in the state of Colorado, in the nation of the United States of America, in North America, that was all determined by God. That's what Paul says right here. It's amazing. He is the one that determined the boundaries of nations. So we have nations rising and falling all the time. And as Christians, we can't take a superficial observation and understanding and interpretation of it based on the news. Behind the scenes is God Almighty is totally sovereign, king of the earth, totally in charge. He knows what's going on. Nothing happens without him allowing it. That is the biblical perspective of the nations of the earth and as they rise and fall and where the boundaries are. That's not to discard the human element and decisions that are made by humans and the accountability that humans have before God for the volition and the ability to choose and make decisions that he has given humanity who are made in his image, who are accountable for our decisions. But at the same time, God's sovereign rule Will always be accomplished perfectly. In perfect sync. Really with the free choices of humanity. Choices that we're accountable for. But God is the one who is. The one that determines the boundaries. And God is the one that determined the boundaries of the nation of Israel. All throughout its 4,000 plus year history. And he will continue to determine its boundaries in the future. God determines the boundaries of all nations. Number four. God promised to make Abram, a nation. Turn to Genesis 15. We're actually going to read a couple of highlights in this passage that was referred to earlier. So just a little history. God calls Abram about 2000 BC. Abram is a total pagan. He's 75 years old. He grew up as a polytheist. His relatives were polytheists. They worshiped idols. They hadn't heard about the true God yet. They lived over there by the Tigris-Euphrates River over in Babylon, over in modern-day Iraq, Iran. 500 miles away from israel that's where abram was 75 years old god just in his sovereign grace decides to choose this pagan idol worshiper to do something special through him that that is the grace and mercy of god and his name is abram and he chooses abram and he makes this amazing promise to him in genesis chapter 12 abram i'm going to make you a nation not just a nation i'm going to make you a great nation i'm going to make you the blessed nation And those who bless you, I will bless. And those who curse you, I will curse. And the reason you're going to be great is not because of you in and of yourself. It's because of the Messiah that will come through your loins, who will be the savior of the world. We learn from the New Testament. That's why Abraham is so great, because the Lord Jesus Christ, savior of the world, came from Abraham. That was Genesis chapter 12. So he's 75 years old. So, okay, you're going to make me a nation, God? Well, I got this. I'm 75. My wife is 65 And we're already senior citizens. And my wife is barren. We have no children of our own, and the future doesn't look good. And so Abraham has a struggle. Wow, I want to believe God, but practical reality says she is not going to have any children at this age. So probably about another 10 years goes by, from 75 to 85, just before he's 85 years old. And uh, Abraham's wife, Sarah, does not get pregnant. So then there's some doubting on, abraham's part and sarah's part that wow we're never going to have that child to have a nation you need people and they got to come from the loins of abraham to be his people his nation 10 years go by nothing's happening no children so there's some doubt and god wants to alleviate the doubts that abraham has 10 years later he does chapter 15 look at it after these things the word of the lord came to abraham in a vision okay so god spoke uniquely in a vision to abram And he said, do not fear, Abram. I am a shield to you. Your reward shall be great. He's reiterating his promise. Abraham said, oh, Lord God, what will you give me since I am childless? Okay, my wife, she's now going on 85 years old, 75 years old, Sarah. She still hasn't had a baby. How are you going to fulfill the promise of me becoming a great nation when I don't even have any children or descendants? So he's questioning God. But it's a legitimate question. God answers the question. I'm childless. Um, verse two, and the heir of my house is Eliezer. All I got is this slave who's going to inherit everything when I die if I don't have any sons or daughters. Eliezer. Verse three, and Abram said, "Since you have given no offspring to me, one born of my house is my heir." So Eliezer, he's going to inherit everything. God, he's not even related to me. Verse four. Then the then behold, the word of the Lord came to Abraham to set him straight and correct him. No, this man will not be your heir. Not Eliezer. He's not going to be your heir but one who will come forth from your own body, he shall be your heir. Sarah is going to have a child just like I said. And God took Abram outside and said, look now towards the heavens and count the stars. So Abraham looks up. If you are able to count the stars, God said, then so shall your descendants be. And so he looked up and there were just countless stars. And that was God's promise to Abraham. You're going to have countless descendants, not just one descendant, but countless descendants. And then finally, the spirit of God graciously worked on the heart of Abraham as he heard the word of the Lord. And the result was verse six. Then he, Abram, believed in the Lord. He believed in God's word and God reckoned it to him as righteousness. This is when, according to Paul in Romans four, this is when Abraham got saved. He was justified by grace through faith in this moment. Responding to the divine revelation of Almighty God. Not by works, but by grace. Verse 7, and he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans. Here it is, verse 7. Abram, I brought you all the way here, 500 miles to the land that was possessed by the Canaanites to give you this land to possess it. There it is, that is key. Who owns the land? Who has the rights to it? Genesis fifteen seven. Almighty God who created the world and owns it declared to Abraham, I am committed to giving you this land that you might possess it. And then the rest of the chapter, and God says, and you know what? just to show that this is an unconditional promise on my part and a perpetual promise on my part, I'm going to make a covenant with you, Abraham. I'm going to make a vow to you. I'm going to make an oath to you. And I'm not going to swear with you a handshake. I'm going to swear by myself. God made a vow unto himself. The eternal, changeless, almighty God made a vow with himself regarding this promise that he would give the land to Abraham and his descendants forever. And then you can see the details of the oath. Uh, God has Abraham do these weird, crazy things, taking these animals, uh, slicing them up, blood squirting all over the place. Three-year-old, verse 9, bring me a three-year-old heifer, a living heifer and a three-year-old female goat that never did anything to anybody. Can you imagine the animal rights activists back then, if they had any? Seriously, this is gruesome. A female goat, a three-year-old ram, a turtle dove, a turtle dove, man, they're cute. Turtle dove? Pigeons? Some people have pigeons as pets. Then he brought all these to God, I mean, to yeah, to God, and he cut them in two. Just graphically think about that. Innocent life being put to death. That's the imagery. Sin requires blood, death. That's the picture. And then he laid them down, all these dead body parts, these animal parts. Verse 11, the birds of the prey came down upon the carcasses. Verse 12, now when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon... So God puts Abraham to sleep, and behold, terror and great darkness fell upon uh, Abraham. Just as he was falling asleep, verse 13, God said to Abraham, know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs, or they will be enslaved and oppressed for 400 years. This is an amazing prophecy. 2000 BC, God tells him, by the way, I'm going to give you this land, you're going to possess it forever, but just so you don't stumble... And your people and your descendants don't stumble and think that I'm not keeping my promise forever. Here's a prophecy you should keep in mind. In about 200 years, 1800 B.C., the time of Joseph, your people, Abraham, are going to go down to Egypt and they are going to become slaves to Pharaoh and Egypt. And they will be slaves for about 400 years. But I'm going to set you free. I'll bring you back out and bring you back to this promised land keeping my promise. This is amazing prophecy in verse 13. It's exactly what happened. Verse 14, but I will also judge the nation. I'm going to judge Egypt, uh, whom they will serve. And afterward, they will come out with many possessions. I'll set those Israelites free back to their own land. Verse 18, on that day, the Lord God made a covenant or an oath or a promise to Abram, saying to your descendants, I have given this land. Who does the land belong to? The descendants of Abram. It is clear as can be. And this is uh, reiterated over and 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 over in the Bible, in the Old Testament. Just get a concordance and just type in land or whatever. And there are so many verses you can't even keep track of them. And it goes all the way from the time of Abraham all the way to the end of the Old Testament. It's not ambiguous. It is clear. Verse four, uh, number 4, God promised to give Abram, uh, to make Abram a nation. Uh, number five, God gave the land of Canaan to Abram, Genesis fifteen seven. So in that same chapter, uh, God told Abraham, go over to that land initially. Go, go to a land, I will tell you. Oh, okay, what land? Well, just go to a land. Go that way. And he started going that way. And then when he got there, God told him, well, specifically this land, the land where Canaanites are currently living. Canaanites who are the descendants of Ham, descendants of Ham who was the son of Noah, the cursed line of Noah. The immoral line of Noah, the idolatrous line of Noah, and remove them. They don't deserve the land. They don't have the rights to the land. It's not their land. It's my land. I am God the creator. This is to be your land. But at the time, it's called the land of the Canaanites, or Canaan. That's why we call it Canaan. So Israel is oftentimes called Palestine, Canaan, the promised land. It goes by many different names. So number five, God gave the land of Canaan to Abraham, Genesis fifteen seven and God said to Abram, I am the Lord who brought you out of the, of Ur of the Chaldees to give you this land to possess, specifically the land of Canaan. Uh, Leviticus 20 verse 24, this is for, uh, let's see, 2000 BC is Abraham, then in the time of Moses who wrote Leviticus, fast forward 600 years, 500 plus years, God told Moses, Leviticus 20 verse 24, hence I have said to you, you are to possess their land, their land, Who's that, the Canaanites? It's not their land by rights. It's their land by occupation. The Canaanites are there, but they don't belong there. I don't want them there. You need to be there. It's your land. I gave it to you. I promised it to you. It's yours in perpetuity. So Moses, you and the Israelites, go in there and possess their land. And I myself will give it to you to possess it. Land flowing with milk and honey. I am the Lord your God who has separated you from the peoples of the earth. Well, how long did God promise to give Abraham this? We alluded to it earlier. That's number six. God gave the promised land to Abraham forever. Scripture actually does call the land of Israel the promised land. Why? Well, because God made a promise to Abraham. He said, it's your land. It's your land. It's your land forever. And I'm going to give you countless descendants to possess it. It's the promised land. Because God's the one that made the promise. So God gave the promised land to Abraham, not temporarily, not while the patriarchs were alive, not just as long as Moses and his people were alive, not just throughout the time of the Old Testament until the majority of Israel turned their back on Jesus, the Messiah, as John chapter 1 says, and then, oh, God, God took it away from Israel. No, it's forever. That's number 6. God gave the promised land to Abraham forever Genesis 13:15. For all the land which you see, all the land which you see I will give it to you and to your descendants forever. Now it's interesting if you do a Hebrew word study for those of you who know Hebrew on the word forever, you'll never guess what forever means. It means forever. Number 7. God gave the land to Abraham forever with a promise or technically an oath and a sign What was the oath? Well, the oath, we just read about it in Genesis 15 when God made an oath unto himself through a covenant, through the slaughtered animals, ratified by a sign. What was the sign? Two chapters later, Genesis 17, God tells Abraham, this will be the sign of the covenant that I have made with you. And it's called circumcision. And that became the sign of the Abrahamic covenant. So that was another formal way to ratify the covenant, the promise that God had made to Abraham regarding the land. So God gave the land to Abraham and his descendants forever, with a promise, and an oath, and a sign. By the way, I didn't read it, and I didn't have time, but you can go back and read Genesis 15. God actually gives the the boundaries of the promised land. It's on the back of your bulletin for you. There it is, the boundaries. Uh, Basically, God said, you're going to you're going to own the land from the river of Egypt, which many people think is the Nile River, because it's one of the largest rivers in the world, uh, all the way up to the Nile of or the uh, river of Euphrates. Which would be all the way over there. Huge swatch of land. And that was the, the specific land that God told Abraham belonged to him. He owned it. That is yours. It's your land. Now, it's kind of interesting. God said, this is your land, Mo, uh, Abraham. This is your land, 2000 B.C. But if you trace the life of Abraham, so God called him when he's 75. He died when he was a 75. For a 100 years, you can read about it in the book of Genesis, are these dealings with Abraham. So over a 100-year period where God said, Abraham, this land belongs to you. It is yours. By the time Abraham died, he actually only owned a small portion of it, which was right in the middle of the land, and it was a, a plot of land that Abraham actually bought and paid for. From people who lived there, indigenous peoples who lived there when he got there. And he, he said, can I buy this field here? Cause it's got a nice cave over there, which would make a great tomb. And I'll give you a bunch of, uh, silver coins for it. Oh no, you're Abraham, man. Uh, people are afraid of you. You can have it for free. No, no, no. I don't want it for free. I want to buy it. I want to, I want the title deed. No, you can have it. No, it's, just, just borrow it as much as you want, Abraham. Go ahead. No way. I'm not, I want, I'm going to, oh, I want to buy it here. Here's my, si-. and they had a little spat going on. And Abraham wanted to buy it. God wanted him to buy it because God wanted him to own it. So Abraham actually bought that little plot of land. And it had a cave, and he buried his wife Sarah there, and then he was buried there, and then uh, the patriarchs were buried there, and their wives were buried there. And of all this territory from 300 miles north and south to 100 miles east and west, that plot of land that God said belongs to Abraham, by the time he was dead, he actually owned a small field. But you know what? that That was a down payment for what would come later on the back of your map. That eventually all of that will belong to Israel, which brings us to our next point, number eight. So uh, Israel had a challenge. Uh, Actually, Abraham had a challenge. Okay, Abraham, move in there where the Canaanites are. By the way, the Canaanites, they're not really friendly uh, and the Canaanites is just a general term for a lot of other peoples who lived there because the Canaanites would include all those uh, funny named Izites, the Perizzites, the Dozites, the Theseites, plus the Philistines. They were not a friendly bunch. They lived on the coast, and they were like the Vikings. They were like into killing people and stuff and beheading people and doing weird things, and they were violent, and they were huge, and they were uh, military-like warriors. And so that wasn't easy. Uh, Abraham has to go in there and take all this land from all these people that want to kill him. And so that was the history of Israel. All these people trying to kill Israel in the process of them possessing the land that God told them to take, which belonged to them. And God said, well, I'm going to help you. I'll help you do it. And so God began to help them formally through Moses and Moses' protege, Joshua. And Moses died. And then Joshua took these two million Jews across the Jordan River into the land of the canaanites to try to take over and occupy the land and it was it went on for years over a decade having all these battles and wars in the north and the south and sometimes they were successful and sometimes oops we didn't kill them all and actually we left a a little bit or a few of these hostile peoples in our wake and they came back to haunt israel later but it wasn't easy to take it over uh, but God's intention was that once you get in the promised land, and if you obey me and listen to me and be my people and be my children, then I, I want to bless you, Israel. I want to keep you safe. I want to provide for you. I want you to reap from the fruit of the land. Uh, I will bless the land in terms of plants that will grow and the animals that will live there and the people around you. So I, I, that's my intent. I want to bless you. I want you to be my people. You're the children of God. You're the Israelites. You're the Jews. I want to bless you because the promise I made to Abraham. I want to bless you not because you deserve it. You're sinful and wicked, but I want to bless you. I want to be good to you. I want to be merciful to you not just spiritually, but also physically. So I want to bless this land, this treasured land, this fertile land, this most highly valued land in all of planet Earth, even to this day. there in the Middle East in the fertile crescent. So God made it clear. Leviticus 26 is just one example of how God wanted to bless Israel once they entered the land. And it was conditioned. Much of it was conditional in terms of some of the practical blessing they would receive. If you obey, if you don't turn away from me, if you don't follow other gods, I'm going to do this for you. That's Leviticus God promised to bless and protect Israel. I shall, quote, I shall also grant peace in the land of Israel, says God, so that you may lie down with no one making you tremble. You'll lie down at peace. You won't be threatened by your enemies. You won't be under attack or under siege all the time. I shall also eliminate harmful beasts from the land. And no sword will pass through your land. That's if you obey So that's a, that's a perpetual promise from the Bible. If you obey and submit to God, you'll have blessing and protection from God in your life. And guess what? It's not always, it doesn't always look as how we want it to be. It's how God knows what's best in terms of that blessing. So he wanted to protect and and, uh, bless Israel in the land. Verse 9. God warned Israel of discipline. So he wanted to protect them, but also in Leviticus 26, God warned them. If you you obey, you'll be blessed. But at the end of Leviticus 26, if you disobey, there will be consequences. There will be discipline. Not the almighty wrath of God tearing the property away from them, but just God chastening his child Israel. Israel who would always be his own. Like a parent who loves his child disciplines their child. And so here's some of the discipline God promised. Now, Israel, once you get in the land, if you're disobedient, you, however, I will scatter among the nations. So part of the chastening that Israel would undergo is if they were disobedient, followed other gods, committed immorality, refused to repent, then God would literally scatter the nation of Israel around the world and mix them up among the nations. And that's exactly what he did in 722 B.C. and 586 B.C. That's Old Testament history. Now, there was still a remnant left in the land, but for the most part, he scattered the nation of Israel all throughout The world that's why you have jews in just about every corner of the earth today why how did that happen well because god scattered them historically we might even have jewish people in our congregation how'd you get here well you study the history it happened here started here from the chastening of god you however i will scatter among the nations and will draw out a sword after you as your land becomes desolate and your cities become waste so god Warned Israel about discipline. Part of that would be being removed from the land. See, and that historically answers the question, well, why are there Palestinians there who were actually Arabs and who were actually Muslims saying they own the land? And why were the British there in the early 1900s saying that was their land? And before the British, it was somebody else and somebody else. And before that, all the way back to the New Testament time. Why was it the Romans after Christ's time took over the land of Israel and they said it was theirs? And there wasn't a Jew to be found in 180 uh, AD. How did the Jews get displaced like that? Well, it all comes back here. God said, I'm going to displace you. If you're disobedient, that's exactly what happened. Verse 10, an important point. Israel never occupied all of their land. That's huge. God gave the boundaries of, uh, in Genesis 15 all the way from the Euphrates River down to the Nile River. It is all yours. It will belong to you. And you study Old Testament history, and basically Israel never came close to occupying all the land that belonged to them. Not one time in history ever did Israel possess all of this land, not even under Solomon or David, their two greatest kings. Well, did God lie? No, God doesn't lie. He keeps his promises. And God guaranteed them, you know what? You are going to possess all of this land. I will fulfill that promise. It is guaranteed. But never in history has Israel occupied all of that land. Compare the map I just showed you right here to a modern day map of what Israel actually possesses today. And it's very, very small, very small portion, not even close to what God had promised. That means there's a future for Israel. That's number 11. God will restore Israel to the promised land. There it is. Leviticus 26, the promise, 1400 BC, God says, you'll be disobedient. I will scatter you, but I won't forget you. I will remember my promise. Then I will remember my covenant with Jacob, and I will remember also my covenant with Isaac and my covenant with Abraham. There it is as well. And I will remember the land. I will remember to bring Israelites or Jews from all over the world back to the land of Israel. And that's what God has been doing. He's been doing it throughout history. There was a resurgence of it after World War One. And especially after World War II, especially at 1948 and beyond, and then 1967, and even recently with the rise of the Muslim world who wants to wipe out the Jews, many of them have been going to the nation of Israel as a place of refuge. And God promises he's going to restore Israel to the land, the Jews. He will fulfill that promise. And what that means is the entirety of what he promised from the Euphrates River down to the Nile River. That hasn't happened yet, it's going to happen, which takes us further into the future. Look at number 12. When is that going to happen? Well, uh, sometime in the future. Jesus is coming again. Can I get an amen? Jesus is coming again. Good, you're still, you're still awake even though it's time for lunch. Um, Jesus is coming again, and this is where we go to the book of Revelation, Zechariah, uh, Ezekiel, and all these prophecies, and there's a mass of information we can't cover here. But the promise to uh, Israel is, that out of the loins of Abraham will come a savior. His name is Jesus. He will come the first time to die on the cross and be punished for the sins of sinners who might believe in him and have their sins forgiven, that they would be spiritually adopted into God's family. And then he will return to heaven where he came from. And then he's going to come again the second time in the future, not as the savior, not as the suffering savior, but as the reigning king of kings and judge of the earth. And that is yet to come. It's literal. It's future. It's guaranteed. It is the heart's prayer of every Christian. And when the Lord Jesus comes, as described in detail in Revelation 19, Zechariah 13 and 14, Jesus Christ will literally, he's going to come to planet Earth. He's going to land in Israel. He's going to land in Jerusalem. He's going to land on the Mount of Olives. And he will begin to reign as King of Kings and Lord of Lords over planet Earth for 1,000 years. That's what the Bible teaches. That is real. That is literal. That is guaranteed. And if you are a Christian, you're a believer, guess what? You get to reign with Christ in the future during that time. Isn't that awesome? Some of you, I know many of you out there want to go, want to go to Israel someday. I'm never going to get to go to Israel. It's too expensive. I don't have time. You're going to Israel. You are going to Israel. Not only that, you'll get to see Jesus because you will be with Him. It's what the Bible teaches. It's absolutely awesome. And there's more passages there I put if you want to read the details. And then number 13, Jesus will reign as king in Israel. By the way, point being, since Jesus is God and he's in a resurrected body, he is the sovereign one, he knows all things, he is all-powerful, yet he's going to be reigning literally in a body on planet Earth in Jerusalem as the king of planet Earth, totally in charge, then he will take what is rightfully his, and that means for the first time in history the entire borders of the land of Israel that God promised to Abraham for the first time in all of world history, from the Euphrates River down to the Nile. It will belong to the people of Israel. As they are led by their, get this, Jewish Messiah and King who is Jesus. Number 13, Romans 9 through 11. Well, what about the New Testament? I thought uh, the Jews bailed on Jesus and then God supplanted Israel with the church. No, no, that's wrong thinking. Romans 9 through 11, Paul says, absolutely not. The promises and the gifts of God are irrevocable. God never takes back his promises. He made an eternal, perpetual promise to Abraham and the Jews that they would occupy the land, and that will be fulfilled in detail, and it will happen in the future. Romans 9 through 11. I'll close with Ezekiel 38, 18. Just a beautiful little phrase. Ezekiel 38, 18, talking about the future. Probably during the time of the tribulation, as described in the book of Revelation. Ezekiel thirty-eight eighteen, God says he's going to bring Israel back to the land. He's going to defend them. He's going to conquer all the nations around them that are trying to smother and attack them. And God says, I will bring you to my land, my land. God says, God calls Israel my land. Who does the land belong to? God. Creator, Savior, Judge, soon and coming King. Amen. With that, let's go ahead and pray. Father, we thank you for our time together. I Thank you that we can go to the Word of God, Scripture, uh, the Bible, to look at controversial subjects even in our day, topics that are politicized and much is spoken in ignorance or with pure neglect of true history or even what the Bible says. And I thank you that your your word is crystal clear. God, thank you for your promise that you articulated uh, to Abraham, that you would give him and his de- descendants the land of Israel forever, and you would do great things as a result of uh, the intention to bless all the peoples of the earth through the blessed Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for that wonderful promise and the fulfillment of that promise through our Savior, Jesus, whose name we pray and, and we commit it all to you in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening. Dr. McManus is an author, seminary professor, and pastor-teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship. For more information about Grace Bible Fellowship, please visit our website at gbfsv.org or call us at 650-630-0009.